How are we all doing? Welcome to another episode of Pint the Mic, a vent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with artists across different music scenes in the UK and beyond. We discuss their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the mic. If you could bottle one of your favourite odours into a band, that would be a perfect description of my guest for today's show. That is because I am speaking to Alex from London-based band New Car Smell. New Car Smell are a brass and percussion instrumental band, but who chuck in a plethora of musical genres into their music, whether that's drum and bass, jazz and soca. They basically do not set boundaries for the music they make, and definitely don't think about what others think of them when they're performing. In this episode, I check in with Alex about the journey of new car smell, self-expression, avoiding poses in the music scene, insomnia, OCD, and the impact that negative and interruptive thoughts have had on him and his mental health throughout his life. Get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go behind the mic with new car smell. Alex, welcome to Behind the Mic, mate. Thanks so much for coming on and letting me check in with you. I was pleasantly surprised when you replied to my DM several months ago after I sent it, so I'm glad we are finally here now. First off, how are you keeping, mate? Mate, pleasure's all mine. I'm keeping pretty well at the minute, to be honest. Got a nice steady routine, Saturday, so it's my day off. Taking it nice and easy with a cup of tea. How about you? Yeah, love that, mate. Uh, I'm okay. I'm existing. I've gone from saying to people I'm surviving to just existing now. So that's my state of consciousness and mental state right now. I say scraping by. Scraping by is a good one as well. I'm really excited to talk about your brilliantly named band, New Car Smell, as well as your mental health journey, mate. So shall we just crack on with the show? Let's start the pod by talking about your musical journey with New Car Smell, Alex. But before we do that in more detail... Why don't you tell me how your love affair with music started? Who were some of the artists you listened to growing up? Maybe what impact they had on you and your mental health? And then when you first got into playing instruments? Yeah, so I'm fairly lucky, actually, when it comes to being exposed to music from a young age. Because both my parents, particularly my mum's, like, really, really into music. And she was into, like, soul and R&B records from, like, the 80s and 90s. So, like, loads of George Michael, loads of Robbie Williams, Sade... Ah, trying to think of a few others. Like George Michael was a huge one. And that's kind of part of the reason as well where I was allowed to pick up the saxophone because I wanted to play drums originally. But mum's like saxophone because of Careless Whispers, because of Baker Street. And I wouldn't stop playing the recorder when I was like seven years old and used to play it in the car. It was on me all the damn time. Like when I was at school, pick up the recorder, just toot all day long. And yes, so my mum one day was like, we're getting you a proper instrument. Though, funnily enough, about the drums, that was more my brother's influence. So, you know the song A Certain Romance by the Arctic Monkeys? Like, there's that really cool drum solo at the start, right? Like, on the toms, and it's like... Dun, 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 dun. I saw the music video for that, and I was like, I want to play drums. And obviously, my brother was, like, 14, so he was like, yeah, you should play drums. And I was like, to my parents, it's like, I'm going to play the drums. And they're like... <laughs> so I had to find another instrument that I thought was cool, and everyone plays the guitar, so... Didn't want to play that, so I played the saxophone instead. And I was hooked pretty instantly, to be honest. I just, like the recorder, I would just learn the notes and I would play them and I'd have my sheet music. I'd just play with it. It was my favourite toy. There's nothing that gets me more into an ethereal state of consciousness when I hear a 
ridiculous saxophone climax solo on like a really great record I listen to you know especially when it comes to like alt pop and dream pop they use saxophones a lot and I like you said with your band as well new cast Mel, you just use it completely throughout your records can you tell me how the wonderful name of the band came about there must be an amazing story behind it right <laughs> yeah so I mean it's uh, it's not that exciting it's pretty good Jack and I when we started the band we were inspired by a band called Moonhooch and they were like when they first came to like mainstream popularity enough that people in Europe really gravitated towards them was around like 2012. And the reason was because in like, I think it was like 2009, 2010 in New York, they relaxed the busking laws. And so people from all these schools, like, I think they were from the new school, but there's also like Berkeley and Juilliard and all these amazing college students with no money whatsoever. They all took to the streets. So these guys started playing like dance music. But like acoustically, so you didn't need like a DJ, you didn't need like a drum machine or something. And people really enjoyed that because they could see exactly what was going on. So we were like, yeah, let's do that kind of thing because no one's doing that in London right now. So we got together in his flat and we had a bunch of whiskey sours. Um, <laughs> and I think it was, oh, I can't remember what drink it was, but it smelled of new car. So Jack was like, oh, it has this kind of new car smell. And we like looked at each other and it was like, it was one of those moments. It was probably like so cheesy. And then we're like, okay, well, that's the band name sorted. Now we need outfits. We hadn't even got a song at this point, but we knew we had a name and we knew we needed some outfits. So yeah, New Car Smell was born. And for anyone who isn't aware of the sound of New Car Smell, Alex, I know you don't really fit into one particular genre, but how would you describe the sound of music you make if you had to? Without it sounding too pretentious, it's more like the energy of it. Fast and loud, definitely. <laughs> I mean, uh, the track that you're going to play later on is a bit of a slower one, but it does speed up and it is like quite loud. It's very in your face. Genres were inspired by definitely drum and bass. There's just so much drum and bass in London. Like, it's impossible not to really identify with the genre. Definitely rock. We've even done a cover of When the Sun Goes Down by Arctic Monkeys. Definitely bits of funk in there as well. And we're also inspired by the band Melt Yourself Down, so we've got Caribbean elements in there, lots of soca, those kind of grooves going on. But to be honest, our sound is defined more by the instruments and the energy than it is an actual genre. We don't go in and say, hey, we're going to write a funk song. Hey, we're going to write a rock song, because it's quite limiting. Like, you don't really want to do that. You want to get, like, a point across, and then the genre is incidental. You told me off air that you're really keen on creating a community through Newcastle, despite the fact that most of our communities are now online in the modern age. Tell me more about this desire and what mental health benefits do you think you could bring to people and yourselves with that? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. I think online communities are still very much valid. And it's really interesting to see how different social media outlets actually accommodate for these different communities. For example, Facebook is now more pages and groups orientated. Like if you've got like a funny meme page or something, which Jackass, who's a phone player, <laughs> makes and all three of us absolutely love. But like you can get really niche categories in there and really small communities and like Instagram, it's more like your friends, like seeing people around you and forming a, mm, I guess, a community in its own way. But in terms of what New Car Smell does and the way that we want to create a community is by doing something specific with a specific style that really speaks to us. And just knowing that if we bring that to people through busking, releasing albums, doing videos, and just like constantly pumping them out, you know, on the internet for people to see, it will hopefully attract like-minded people. And for us, the community that we want to create is one where it's not so self-conscious. 
Can you tell me about the story of the first new Castmel gig and walk me through that mental process? You know, how did you feel before the gig, that moment when you were in full flow on stage and then the aftermath endorphin rush or feedback you got? We've got to highlight that Jack and I played in a band called the Full Tilt Collective as a Theo and our new drummer Alex Shad, actually. So we've actually played together loads. So when we got up on stage, it didn't really feel like a maiden voyage. But actually, the way that the first gig came about was quite funny. So I went to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London, and in third year, we have a module called Professional Studies. And in this, what you need to do is perform and document a gig, which is fantastic because, unfortunately, a lot of music colleges anyway, you get people who go through the entire process and graduate, and they've never actually played a show. And teachers don't actually seem to get involved because everyone's so protective over their own work because we're, for better or for worse, we're living and working in an oversupplied market. So our teachers are musicians and they do their work and they just want that to be sorted and then do the educational process. And there's not really a link into the industry. So you get these people who don't perform or anything. But for this module, you have to get a gig. And I had gigs at the time, just like once a week, you know, nothing crazy. I wasn't like, <laughs> I wasn't like touring, touring Japan or something. It was a residency in Leytonstone, actually. And uh, yeah, Freddie, you're from Leytonstone, right? A place called Luna, actually. Yeah, we played there and I had a residency there for almost a year because we lived in Leytonstone. Well, me and a couple of my flatmates, not Newcastle. And uh, I was like, great, so I'm just go over play the gig, get Suja to give it a write-up or something, send a couple of emails, yeah, send it off, yeah, this is great. Suja didn't like our music anymore, so we lost the residency. And then for like one month, I just didn't have any gigs. I'd left all my coursework to the last minute. So I lost my residency, and I didn't have any gigs, so I was like, oh my god, I need a gig. <laughs> like, I actually need a gig. And Jack and I had started this band at this point, and I was like, well, this is easy. It's three people. So we can find a bar somewhere. And I had these bizarre two days where it was like, get a gig. That was my sole objective was to like find a gig. I'd played in the hip hop collective and what for a little bit, a year, year, maybe a year and a half before that. And I know this guy, big shout out to Anthony, who runs a place or runs events every Thursday at a really wonderful place called Grow in Hackney. So it's a really good venue. And I sent him a message. I was like, mate, I've got this new band. I just need a gig <laughs> like I just we just need to get out and play and so it was like all right there's not going to be any money in it and I was like I'm so my degree just <laughs> my degree kind of like relies on this gig so we did and we put out a few videos of us playing in Theo's house the place is a tip it's hilarious I'm not sure if you can find them these days I might re-release them on YouTube or like do a throwback or something so when we got on stage the music was prepared in a hurry but at the same time, we've played with each other so much. Like, we've just performed a lot. It didn't feel like a maiden voyage. But with the high-vis trousers, and at the time, Theo and Jack wore boiler suits as well. Proper hazmat ones with, like, the hoods and stuff, which were so hot. It was just like we were sweating buckets. It was just fun. And our friends showed up. And by the end of it, everyone was like up off their chairs, jumping up and down. I was like, this really is something. If we can get a room full of people, a room full of our friends to get up and start dancing, and then say there's 15 people in there already who are now up and dancing, who's saying we can't make 3,000 people get up and start dancing? Every band will definitely have one, two, or even three bad sets in their career, Alex, maybe even more. 
is there a story that you can share that you feel comfortable sharing? And more importantly, so we can normalize making mistakes for our listeners, what did you learn from it, do you think? Actually, not so much with the new cast mode. We've only played like a handful of gigs, actually, to work due to play a few more but given the circumstances we can't at the minute i will say with the band that i mentioned before the full tilt collective and this is before jack had joined the band as well we played a gig at alley cats which it's in london it's on denmark street i think i don't know if the place is still open now and it was on a thursday night and this gig i don't know if the sound engineer was just wasted or something but basically <laughs> our gig got pushed back to midnight on a thursday the bar was like almost dead it was like had a few people, but those people were like the walking dead. They were, they were gone. I think we were playing to like a dozen people in a band that already had 10 people in it. So it was one of those classic sort of band is about as big as the audience kind of gigs. And I kid you not, there were like seven horn players on stage. So like two sax players, two trumpet players, trombone player and a sousaphone. And there was a man in the front row sitting on a wooden stool fast asleep like fast asleep he was a sight he was like a sort of like cartoon security guard he was like he was like laid back just like snoring away and every so often he just go like yeah <laughs> and like look up at us and that was kind of a point where it was like guys we need to choose our gigs more carefully because this is a categoric waste of time um so that was pretty terrible i'm sure i've made lots and lots of mistakes on stage but I don't care too much about them, at least not anymore. In terms of when I was at school, music school, definitely I can think of first year and second year, I was terrified playing my recitals. Like I was so scared because you've got a panel of experts who just know every little thing about every bit of your playing. And because of that academia that's kind of introduced to the music, it takes away from the more organic process of just enjoying the experience. What does the stage provide for you and your mental health, Alex? Is it escapism? Is it a healing method, something cathartic, or perhaps even deeper than that? I think definitely a sense of escapism, which music's always offered me, to be honest. Even as a teenager, when I was going through like rougher times, music was always something that I would, well, eventually kind of cling on to. Going into school, I would listen to my brother's music because he'd have his iPod and I didn't know how to load up an iPod. So I'd just be stuck listening to like, I don't know, the Pixies or like Kaiser Chiefs or Foo Fighters, lots and lots of Foo Fighters. This is all really, really, really good music. Maybe not so much DJ Tiesto, but hey. But yeah, when I'm performing, it's a moment where I feel like I have something to say. I feel like we as a band have something to say. You can look at us and you can be at least fooled into thinking we know what we're about. The, we have gone and thought about some outfits, that we've thought about the kind of music, the kind of energy we want to bring. And I think just that assertion or the intention behind it is really, really therapeutic because your worries go out of the window. You've got a job to do. You've got a community to connect to. You have an audience to speak to. They've all turned up to see your show. And that sort of like sense of responsibility is, well, it takes away some of life's mysteries, I guess, that we all like to preoccupy ourselves with, whether where we're going in our careers, where we should be, who likes us, that thing you said to some friend last week. It all goes out of the window because you've just got to play. And that sort of very organic, 
calming of the analytical mind is just such a nice place to be. You place such an emphasis on having fun as performers, Alex, and giving that to your audience. How do people react to that initially? And did that carefree attitude and confidence take time to build? It did take time to build. Initially, when I first picked up the saxophone, I was like a pig in mud. And I'm still a pig in mud. I just am. <laughs> it's fantastic. And like, you're teaching kids saxophone as well. You do realize that some kids are more inclined than others. Not that I'm going to take you know, I'm going to absolve myself of any responsibility. I think all kids can find at least a little something in music if they really focus on it and give it 100%. But for me, I always wanted to do it. But during my teens, I definitely lost confidence. I lost confidence in myself in general, and I lost confidence consequently in my playing because that's part of my identity. That was countered by the fact that at school I was, quote-unquote, one of the talented kids. I'd be able to improvise solos and I'd be able to, you know, sight-read or at least get a half-decent sound out of the instrument, that kind of thing. So I definitely had that ego boost going for me. But deep down on the inside, the saxophone, it was a means of escapism, but I was bringing some of my anxieties to the music. So in first and second year of university, when all my friends are super talented, they are crazy, crazy talented. You're not a big deal anymore. And everyone knows absolutely everything about what you're doing and they understand and they're not impressed by it. Now that that sort of ego that I was talking about earlier that I had in school, well, it flies out the window because it's not impressing anybody anymore. So I talked to my mum about this when I was in second year and it was when I failed my second study on bass guitar. I didn't play very well and the guy was really harsh. He's a nice person, but he can be quite egotistical sometimes. And he just tore me a new one. He just <laughs> absolutely went to town on my bass guitar playing. You know, he was like, why are you doing this? Are you doing this for the money? Because like, I know bass players, you know, who just don't earn any money or don't get the gigs. And I appreciate you've been turning up to my classes, but you haven't taken it in because your time is shit. And obviously he's... Uh, he's just trying to help, but he's kind of going about it in a ill-considered way. And I told my mum, I was like, up to this point, again, with academia, with music, with my grades, everything, every part of my identity is based on achievement. If I don't play well and I don't pass this recital, I'm a loser. I'm a failure. And I would identify as a failure. So from that moment on, I remember that was in second year, it was when I was getting into mindfulness. It was when I was getting into other ways of experiencing music and actually reconnecting with the joy of just hearing and being physically a part of the music. So I made a really conscious effort to strip back the judgment. And my practice routine reflected that as opposed to having something that was really rigorous and had to progress in increments every single day. It became more like, I'm going to sit and breathe for a while notice the space around me, notice the saxophone. Is it hot? Is it cold? What kind of air do I push down it? When I do, what kind of sound does it produce? And little by little, by just like taking in the raw elements of playing an instrument, I was able to reconnect with what made it so fun in the first place. And then by creating music with friends, it's like a sort of multiplier. It's like we can both feel this good about our music together. You know, and now all three of us can feel amazing about playing this music together. And then people look at that and then they can feel amazing about the music happening in front of them. And that for me is what music should be about. 
it shouldn't be academic as such sure you can break it down and you can mimic it and you can reproduce and aid creative processes through academia through labeling through acknowledging virtuosity through acknowledging creativity but when music's there especially live it's just there i really liked what you said there about how you took time to become comfortable in your own skin alex when especially when it came to music are there any wider implications here about when people take music too seriously, do you think? Because let's face it, the industry is probably filled with people who think they are too cool for school in some aspects. Have you ever encountered any negative reactions from people in the industry or outside of it for the way you all dance and cut shapes and be yourself? Because there is, I feel, especially pre-COVID when I was going to dance nights and club nights, that I would be cutting loose and cutting a few shapes and people kind of be looking at me a bit funny maybe that's just because i was in london i mean in my opinion there's never anything wrong with taking music or any art seriously it should be taken seriously it's a wonderful thing and well just because you're taking it seriously doesn't mean it has to be severe no one's gonna get hurt if you screw up a gig nobody no matter how badly we play on a gig. No one's got... Actually, there was one gig, actually, speaking of bad gigs at school, where this, uh, this was music college, actually, where uh, the teacher hadn't prepared us properly. That gig, I played so badly, my mum cried. <laughs> that was... <laughs> and she was outside afterwards. Theo was on that, actually. <laughs> Our former drummer. He played brilliantly. I did not. And the band as a whole did not play that well because the teacher kind of bunked off for half of the classes and it just didn't sound good in the end. <laughs> so that is the only time I think I have mentally inflicted harm upon somebody with my music but if everybody <laughs> if everybody is out and about maybe having a pint or maybe just doing whatever they want with a stone cold glass of water just soaking it all in it's not much you can do really to hurt somebody and if they get offended that's kind of their problem whilst we're on this topic another negative part of the industry one might say is how posers or fake friends clinging onto the coattails of bands or artists success in order to get to the parties or be their friends or get the vip guest list can i guess infect their way into some people's lives if they're not careful have you ever experienced that and how do you deal with it from a resilience point of view or kind of detaching yourself or keeping your circle small basically well i mean relating to what you said earlier about people perhaps being posy or like really forcing image for me that isn't actually about them well it is about the music music is a holistic process it involves personalities situations visuals our relationships with ourselves as well it all completely affects how we hear music not even how we listen to it but actually how we hear the stuff which is crazy to think that we all listen and look and perceive the world through our own lens with the posing thing people like to look untouchable i think that's very much a desirable thing if you look really like attractive if you look really charismatic if you look like a philanthropist people want all of these qualities so they're going to gravitate towards you because they want to be you ultimately and it becomes more about people wanting to f almost fulfill or like fill voids in their life if i end up like this person if i look like that and have this much fun all of my problems are going to fly out the window. If I am Beyonce, I will have money and I do not have to worry about that. But it's all lies. Because no matter where you are in life, there are going to be problems. And they're going to manifest themselves in different ways. And definitely on the subject of mental health issues, 
it's a well-known fact that there are many people who made it to the top, top, top artists who struggled with these mental health issues, who may have or may have been told at some point, well, if you make it, if your art sells, don't worry so much, but wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> and to answer your question about people clinging on to coattails and that kind of thing, well, everyone's trying to get in, well, most people are trying to make themselves an easy life. Most people are trying to... To my own judgment, anyway, I'm happy to be proven wrong, and I will be proven wrong. But I feel as though they're just trying to make lives easy for themselves. I'm at no, we're no way famous enough to have clingers on, though. We haven't got, like, a security guard who hustles our way into gigs and gets us into all the hottest clubs in London. <laughs> like, we are nowhere near that. And with the obscurity of our music, we probably... Well, who knows, maybe one day, but like it would be surprising if we reached that level of popularity because even the biggest bands, like Too Many Zoos, for example, with Leo P, like I doubt he's that level of famous. So I can't really comment on that, but for the people who do have these fake friends and people who just want to be part of this fulfilling scene that I mentioned earlier, I guess it's the kind of thing that almost... If you pay attention to it, if you pay attention to the things that people are saying and you are mindful and aware of people's intentions, not in a judgmental way, but just like, hey, this is how it is. This person's going around me. It can only do you so much damage, but if they trick you, which they may do, who knows? Another issue you wanted to discuss, Alex, is perhaps the realities of the industry that people don't see and which I'm quite well versed in or becoming well more well versed in as I do more and more of these pods in particular the possible sway that booking agents or promoter groups or anyone really as gatekeepers have over certain venues which makes your job harder as an independent band and just wanting to get some opportunities tell me how that affects you and possibly any mental health implications as well either for yourselves or for other artists that you know which are kind of in the scene and, and undiscovered or coming up i was actually thinking about this recently that let's just use bbc introducing as like an example and bbc introducing put forward a lot of fantastic music and i have friends who've really benefited from going from that scene where you're playing at your local bar where you're playing, you know, maybe the odd club or something, you're busking on the streets, you've got an album that nobody's ever heard of before. And there's going to be some people who check out a lot of music who are really well informed, who are going to listen and be like, oh, this is kind of a good sound. I say well informed, maybe tasteful even. And they can put people on platforms and they have. And really great artists have come through, through like BBC Introducing. And they've been given a pedestal and a place to speak from where they can show their art to millions of people, potentially. But we're talking about thousands of bands. It wouldn't surprise me if it were like, I'm completely taking a shot in the dark here, but like maybe 10,000 bands a year probably apply to BBC Introducing. We're talking that many people. And like that many people apply to like Boomtown. It was like 3,000 that's meant to be a smaller festival. But how big can the BBC Introducing team be, realistically? It would surprise me if it was more than 50, 60 people actually listening and being curators. We've got curators in Spotify as well, putting things on playlists, for example. That we have thousands going through a funnel of tens, maybe hundreds, beaming back out to thousands of people. So everything we see has gone through this filter. Even if we don't realize it, even the most underground people, unless you really dig and check out local bands, which 100% everybody should do, 
is check out live music because everyone thinks it's going to be some old dude playing an accordion on like a wooden stool somewhere maybe maybe not in london but like <laughs> you know where i'm from in york that may be what you get actually but you go out and you hear some really hip music from like really really good musicians who are innovative who are modern who have good songwriting and you don't realize that what you hear on spotify is just everywhere but it's been put through this filter and there are some bands who for some reason or another are filtered out and so people don't perhaps might not be exposed to their ideal music which is an inevitability right we can only listen to so many things in our lifetime we can only be so many places but it's something to be conscious of and with regards to promoters they might have an aesthetic for example there might be a an agency for example like a booking agency who do indie music let's narrow it down let's say folky mumford and sons where it's kind of indie you know it's kind of folky it's got that thing going on if you've got a festival that has that kind of music you might reach out to the artist personally and lots of festivals do that but for some festivals and some venues they don't want to have that issue because if the artist fails them then they've got legal issues they've got payment they've got a massive headache so they go to these booking agencies who have it all covered and the booking agencies then talk to the bands so it's not like people tend to think or like in the movies where i like stroll in with my fender guitar in its case and like a little trilby on talk to the manager i'm like i'm the hottest guitar player in town you want to check out my music They'd be like, no, we use X, Y, and Z agency, go talk to them. <laughs> and then you've got another filter. You've got another person to talk to. You've got another aesthetic to, like, appeal towards. And all of it takes away slightly from what you had originally set out to do, which is just make music that's true to yourself. Or it can put you in new directions. Necessity is the mother of invention. So, hey, I've got X, Y, and Z weird music but I want to find a way where it's coherent enough for these booking agencies to like it. And that can create interesting art in itself. So who knows if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's something to be aware of for people who are starting out anyway, which I still am. You mentioned busking there at the start of your answer. And when you first started out, you were doing a bit or a lot of busking as a band on the side pre-COVID. I'm sure countless artists got spotted or discovered whilst busking is there a stigma do you think around busking in the music community yeah there is if you busk because people might be fantastic and you get some amazing buskers in london and you get some not so good ones as well so you're like you're introducing yourself to a group or like you're introducing yourself to a stage where there's not really as necessarily as high a standard so people might often see busking as a failure you couldn't make it on stage you couldn't get a gig you couldn't sell x y and z records so now you're stuck here on the streets playing music to anybody who passes by but that's just not helpful for a band that you know suits busking which we have so i've always got that sort of to comfort me that this music suits busking so artistically it still has a point it still has well it has an integrity no matter where it is, but it suits being on the streets. You know, it, it, it's street music. I can sort of reside in that. But, you know, maybe even still a very small slice of me thinks that I'm on the streets because I have nowhere else to play, which is, well, it's rung true these days. But, but definitely when we were first starting out, I felt a little bit nervous about it. What will my friends think of me in these silly outfits? But it's just not true. It's just not a helpful thought. If you want your music to go somewhere, you need to work for it. And busking is great because you have people who are bloggers, vloggers, 
Instagram influencers, you have people who have a massive following on Twitter. If you've got an interesting act and like thousands of people are passing you, you get like one person who has, I don't know, 50,000 followers. They like stick you on their story. They're like, hey, here's this really cool band. Because they're always looking for things to talk about, right? Because they're talking all the time. You've just increased your reach massively. And it's such an easy, practical thing to do that's like really fun when you get into it. You get to see all kinds of, all kinds of crazy people. Some people like to sort of like dance in front of you. And also, it's cheaper than hiring out a rehearsal studio. You can practice instead and make a bit of money on the side. I'd encourage people to go out. If your music suits busking, go out and busk it. And if you're feeling nervous about it, just treat it as practice. Because it is practice, because you get used to playing it to people. You get used to seeing how people react. You get to learn about your appeal if you bring people in in an audience, or if you shock people until they're static. You get to learn what songs people identify with, what of your material works. And it's just so easy to do. If you have the time, it's 100% worth putting in the graft and busking. Let's talk about the Newcastle Mel discography because it's not that big and we'll get this Music Noise chat out of the way before we move on to the last part of this topic. Your debut album, Smell No Evil, came out last year and it is the bulk of your recorded work. Can you just tell me how the album came about, maybe how you felt before and after it launched and was it a big moment in your life? As I understand, at the time you did the album launch event, you were, in your words, as you spoke to me off air, feeling a bit lost. Why was that? Yeah, so I was feeling a bit lost, and as I say, it's a silly band, and all of a sudden I'm to make a career out of this. You know, I'm putting all my eggs in one basket and really putting energy into one band, because that's what it takes. You can, but you really need to know what you're doing and use your time effectively if you want to, like, make it with a few bands that you run. So I was just like, how hard can we plug this band? How hard can we, like, set up photo shoots, make content, yada, yada, yada. Without reference, because this was before our album launch, I was kind of like, I'd spent six months producing this album, making it sound right. And then you've got this contract, you know, something you're taking so seriously, but looks so stupid. It just felt really strange. And sadly, I'd broken up with my girlfriend at the time as well. And I wasn't sure about my housing situation because my friends had terminated the contract early. So I had to get out of there. I was living with my girlfriend for a little bit, living back up north with my parents as well, which I had to do for a short while. Actually, no, I didn't actually. I did before, but after my breakup, my uh, brother let me like couch surf for a little bit. Even one of my friends who was doing busking with a separate band with at the time lent me a place to stay for like a week. And I had to find a place to live, which I did, and I was very lucky. My new flatmates are some of my very best friends, which is a miracle because we didn't even, <laughs> we, none of us knew each other yet. Yeah, we really, really made it work. So I'm extremely fortunate. I'd lost quite a few students in terms of teaching. So it's like, I've worked so hard to get to a certain point where my mind's already very doubtful. I'm already on very unfamiliar territory. And yeah, it just, it just was so unfamiliar. So when the album launch came through and I got to see my friends again and I got to like realize that what I was doing wasn't pointless, it helped me get a lot of my esteem back. It helped give me some purpose, which there's nothing special about really. I can't really doll it up as like, 
or not doll it up, but I can't really pass it off as a mental health issue because this is just something that everybody goes through. If you work towards something that isn't showing a product, isn't showing any result, you know, you're working towards something that's so long-term, it feels like a dream. Naturally, we are going to lose hope. We're going to lose hope in ourselves. We're going to lose hope in other people. We're going to lose hope in our surroundings. And it's going to detach us from reality. The fact that we chose to do something in the first place. You know, that I chose to make this album, put forward this art. And so I guess I was lucky that the album launch itself sort of helped me get grounded again. And it was one of the best times of my life. I felt incredible that day. We'd sold out the show. We'd sold it out twice, actually, which wasn't many people. It was like 60 people. But for us, we got 60 people out on a Thursday night in COVID times. And we managed to find a way where it was socially distanced. Absolutely everybody was sat down. As much as we don't like that, they were sat down behaving themselves and like really appreciating the music. And we were having great conversations. Everyone just had a fantastic time. It just gave me a bit that sort of positive boost I needed to help with understanding my mental health issues at the time as well incidentally but it also it just gave me a purpose to be honest what impact does performing or writing music have on your mental health alex and which outlet helps you more do you think so because i've done so much training in terms of jazz music and i identify with jazz music a lot i tend to just see writing music as an excuse to jam with people that's just a signpost do this play this melody, you know, play this song, and then you play it. <laughs> but that's the good bit, right? For me, writing feels more like cooking. Performing feels more like eating what you've just eaten. So what you've just, <laughs> what you've just prepared. I prefer the eating bit. It definitely reflects on the way that I write these days, that I'm very systematic, and I'm very specific about the way that I put myself in a creative space, really separating the creative mind from the more editing mind. So not worrying too much about if it sounds any good when I'm writing it. Then later on, when I don't care too much about the music, I might revisit it in a couple of weeks. It's be like, you know this part? I mean, it's good, but like, it's not as good as that bit. So let's keep that bit, throw the rest of it in the bin, go back to the artistic side of it, write this new music down. Rinse and repeat. But I try and get it over and done with as soon as I can, to be honest, when it comes to writing. For me, it's just an excuse to have a good time. We always talk on Behind the Mic, Alex, about the myths people might have about the music industry and expose the everyday realities for bands and artists that fans or even friends and family aren't aware of. And I think you've pretty much covered that. So what I'll ask you as a final question is, doing Newcastle Mel for as long as you have, mate, what has it taught you about yourself, do you think? So the band's still, still in its early days. I'm not even sure we're two years old at this point. But for me, what we need to expand upon, I think, is just how I previously identified myself as like this freak, this kind of like I can create these things or I say things in a peculiar way that my aesthetic when I dress might be weird. Just this inherent no matter what I do, because I do it, it's weird. And when I have friends, maybe they're weird as well or because they confide in me and that's a weird thing to do. Why would you do that? But in terms of doing something that's actually kind of like, ha, you know, don't have to take myself so seriously. You can just like, you can just quote unquote, be a freak and realize that there's nothing weird about it, that people are weird. 
that people do weird things all the time. You know, and people love it. And there's nothing strange about it. That's really the ultimate message, is that there's nothing wrong with weird. Because true weirdness is quite a hard thing to find. There's nearly always a reason why somebody does something. We've talked about the weird and wonderful world of New Castmel. Let's go behind the mic and talk about your own journey, Alex, in a bit more detail. So I ask all my special guests this question first. So why don't you tell me about your early life in York, childhood, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint at this time? Who's the Alex we meet here? Before the age of eight, I lived in Huddersfield and then was eight or nine years old. Around 2006, I remember that because I got an Xbox 360 with Sonic the Hedgehog 06, which is a game that's completely glitch-ridden, but oh man, it was it was the real deal at the time. When I was growing up in Huddersfield, it was, I don't know, it's kind of a part of town that now that I'm in York, my parents kind of put a bit of disdain towards because like maybe it's got some rougher neighborhoods, but honestly, it's not rough at all. In fact, for the most part, it's actually really lovely. <laughs> I think... Um, <laughs> I believe you're a Huddersfield FC fan, right? So, like, looking around the Gal Farm before it became the John Smiths. But yeah, growing up, definitely when I first went to school, I did not like it. Before I was even, like, five years old. I just wouldn't know how to behave myself. Even the most simple of exercises, I just, like, throw away. I was a pretty screechy little kid as well. I guess I'm a pretty screechy grown-up, as it so happens now with my band, but hey. But at least now it's like a charismatic screechiness, so like, I didn't actually have many friends, to be honest with you, or like, I don't know what it was that maybe what kids didn't gravitate towards me for, but you know, we're just kids, so it could be anything. Then afterwards, I went to another school, and that was kind of okay, and then I went to a school for a few years, which was Queen Elizabeth Grammar School in Wakefield, which is an all-boys school. I went there until I was about, I think about 10, 11 years old. I still have one friend, big shout out to Tim Hunter, who's actually uh, one of my best friends to this date. And I met him there and we've known each other for ages. But for the most part, when I first got there, I was still struggling with the logistics of classrooms. I just don't think they really suited me. I was quite hyperactive. I was quite creative as well. If I was writing something like a story, I would really go to town with it if I was drawing something I'd really go to town on that as well but I wasn't a popular kid I was often singled out I absolutely love aquariums I love fish like nobody else's business so naturally I was called fish boy for about four years of my life uh, which <laughs> which I look back now I'm like as an adult if I saw a kid just talking about that I'm like I'd be like that's amazing that's great this kid to an aquarium he's gonna have the time of his life but that was something I was singled out for. My hair's like fluffed out all over the place. So I got called names for that. Just got called names for a lot of different things. But eventually somehow or another, I think I used to give away, what came in with like snacks called Turk. I don't know if anyone really uses that term anymore, but like I had Jaffa cakes and just give people Jaffa cakes. Cause like, that's how I used to make friends. I did that. And then I got into like trading Pokemon cards, that kind of thing. And actually weirdly enough, just through like hustle, I think I somehow managed to make friends and I was kind of sad to leave the school in the end because I had some really good supportive friends there. I went to another school which is St. Olive's which went to the senior school St. Peter's after that. I wasn't as mad about it to be honest. St. Olive's was okay. 
it had this middle school so you're like 12 years old and you're still kind of at junior school which i don't think really works you can see past the rules when you're like 12 years old you kind of see them as a little bit naff so yeah so i got bullied quite badly there just like just got called all kinds of names and it was upsetting to be honest I think I really did identify, and maybe to a certain extent still do identify as a loser, one of the uncool kids, one of the nerdy ones, you know, the ones who you know, might enjoy academia. I play video games like absolutely nobody's business as well. I still love video games, but I try and keep myself off them because I like them so much. <laughs> I would never do anything productive. But I got called like sperm. There's a few other ones, but that was like the most offensive the joke wasn't even that good so i'm not even going to go into it but i was called that for like you know maybe like a couple of years and eventually i went to a teacher and talked about it because i talked to my mum about it and she was like this won't do and the kids they formed a community within themselves obviously and like i tried to get in the community but i got picked on and that was my role you know i was kind of like the punch bag but it still felt good to be a part of a community so when you tell on people who are supposedly your friends you get rejected from your community. You know, worse still for you at least, they have a community to reside in, to help themselves with. So they can all talk about how much of a dork you are. That was definitely distressing. I will go back to, unfortunately, when I was at Queen Elizabeth Grammar School, Queggs. I had one teacher who really had it in for me and used to, because I misbehaved all the time, actually just sat me next to her and I was like facing the classroom and that's how I used to do it. So it was just like me by myself, like, abysmal teaching abysmal teaching but then she rang my mum's like this kid's pulling funny faces at the class obviously so my mum was like oh well where's he sat right here and my mum just blew her lid <laughs> she went out she like like blew her lid but in a presumably somewhat calm professional manner just let this teacher know what was up and so all of a sudden I was sat back in with the classroom. And yeah, just being like singled out. When I went to Peter's, they had a common room system. So you were often put in with the same group of people over and over again. So like at playtime, you'd go out of your class and you'd go back to your common room and you'd sit in this room with the same bunch of friends that you've been nominated to hang out with based off lists of the people who you thought were your friends at the time. And to be honest with me, I made good choices. Those people are still my friends. But for perhaps the other people who are more on the outskirts of our friend groups, we formed a really toxic hierarchy. It was horrible. We were horrible towards each other. We'd call each other tragic names, make fun of each other's relationships. You know, like homophobia was so much more prominent back then. So, you know, you're a bender, you're gay, this, that, and the other. I got nicknamed a tapeworm, which was absolutely horrible. I never actually saw a fight, thank God, because at some schools, these do break out into proper fights. But unless you were scary or had like a really quick wit so you can make fun of somebody, you just have to take it. You just have to take verbal abuse every single day. And about two years in, when we'd exhausted all of our other conversations and we were so anxiety ridden that we'd no longer like to explore subjects because as soon as we said something expressive, perhaps, we'd be called bent or something, or we told a crap joke, we'd stand in the corner like a dunce, and if you like got out of the corner, you'd get beats, that kind of thing. And it was just horrible, to be honest. Like, just looking back, that's all it was. And people were forming these hierarchies. At least, I have faith. I think within my common room, at least, the only reason we were doing it is so we wouldn't have to take abuse from other people. That if you were the person perpetrating these insults if you were the kind of person who could come up with these witty funny jokes which were you know often kind of funny in a tragic way 
Like, you wouldn't have to worry. But if you couldn't, well, sorry, life sucks. So that was very difficult, and definitely when I was 15, 16, I just used to go off and, like, do some practice on my instrument because I felt more comfortable. I did have friends, but, like, again, with my insecurities, I didn't confide in them because, honestly, some of my other friends were saying they're a bunch of losers, or words way harsher than losers. So I felt kind of insecure about even the people who were very, very kind to me, which is just completely wrong, that we have to create social groups and communities based around who's the toughest. It was just a really toxic environment, and I'm very lucky that when I went to university, for example, people from other schools didn't see any sense in that kind of behavior. So it was a chance for me to recuperate and realize that it's like, this is daft. This is really stupid. We shouldn't be looking at ways of picking holes in our friends because I was doing it as well. You know, I was being horrible to people. Nothing good comes out of it. And you go down a negative spiral as well because it wasn't the kind of social group where we might well, we did go for the odd night out, maybe, but it's like, on the long run. It didn't feel like the kind of thing where you'd go off and do fun stuff with each other. It was just really bad, to be, <laughs> to be honest. But on the more positive note, I grew up loving video games. And to this day, any Mario-related game, like particularly the big 3D ones, we're talking like Super Mario 64, Mario Sunshine, Galaxy, Odyssey, I just find them the most beautiful, creative games where people have gone so far out of their way to create this world where kids can get completely immersed in and like that can actually expand their imaginations so that's something i loved i wasn't massive about sports to be honest with you i think that's something i've come to appreciate more in the previous few years i spent a lot of time in spain my family go to a uh, holiday in Spain all the time, so uh, at one point I got really quite good at speaking Spanish. And I made friends out there, so I had like a new social group in the summer holidays with my friends in Spain. Which was good as well, because I got to see a whole new landscape. Your journey has so many echoes with mine, Alex, and it was really powerful hearing your experiences of bullying and the social hierarchies and intricacies that you were describing i want to just start the bulk of your mental health journey with your lived experience of obsessive compulsive disorder or ocd for the listeners who don't know can you just tell them what it is and how it affects you in your day-to-day -day life as you said you also suffered with insomnia quite badly growing up too was that linked to it i believe so and uh, it's something i've never really got to the bottom of to be honest but i'm pretty sure my ocd does relate to my insomnia so for people listening, OCD is characterized by obsessive thoughts. So you can think of it as either like hang-ups or they might be intrusive, for example. And it's often characterized by rituals or like mental or physical habits that you build up in order to seek respite from these obsessions. Because a lot of the obsessions are very much unwelcome and they're, they're not helpful in the slightest. So for me... And this is a bit embarrassing to talk about because I, <laughs> I don't really share it. But I thought, well, perhaps now's the time. That when I was about eight years old, I was like a kid of magical thinking. All about that, reading lots and lots of books about this kind of thing. And so, so I was eight years old in primary school. And we'd built and painted this little robot out of cardboard. And I was like, I can get this robot. I'm going to wish for it. You know, like you wish with your birthday candles. You know, when you blow out your birthday candles. I was like, okay, wish for it. I got it. And I got the robot. And I was like, whoa, that just happened. And I told my parents, I was like, I wish for this robot. 
It's mine. Okay, what else can I wish for? Great stuff. I'm gonna gonna wish that I don't know. I whatever my favorite dinner was when I was like eight years old, <laughs> and I got it. And I was suffering from insomnia because maybe this is a consequence of my obsessions or maybe I've got quite a hyperactive mind. I was really and still am very prone to night terrors, which can be anything from getting the mild heebie-jeebies to hallucinations. What are effectively hallucinations? You know their thoughts, but they're like so real and you're so fixated on them that it's like you can't sleep. And... When I was a kid, and this is probably something that I need to dig deeper on personally, is that I used to have a repeated night terror of being eaten by bugs. This resurfaced actually only a few months ago, and I had this repeated nightmare of like, it kind of looked like a glove, but it was like a spider and it was white, and like it would ooze pus, and it would like slowly creep its way towards me, and I didn't want it to climb on me and get all its nasty juices and pus all over me, and I couldn't move. And I think I had this nightmare a lot. So I didn't want it because I didn't want to go to sleep because of these nightmares. But I could wish myself a good night's sleep and I would get it. And I did. And I kept doing it. And then two years passed and I'm 10 years old and I'm still a kid and still believe in it. I'm 12 years old. I don't believe it in it anymore, but it's a habit. And so to this day, I still do it. Before I go to sleep, I have to wish myself a good night's sleep. And it is so strange <laughs> like it is so weird and that's why i haven't opened up to anyone about it because it wasn't like a big deal like it's something that i could probably just like sweep under the carpet for the rest of my life but when i don't do it i just have like pangs of anxiety about not being able to sleep i spoke to you about for example the alarm clocks as well that if i've got an alarm on my phone i've got like something important to do in the morning i'll check it but i'm not quite sure I just check I set my alarm, so I'll check it. But it doesn't quite feel right, so I better better just check it again just in case. And this is the obsession part of it. This is where the obsession comes in rather than it being functional. And so I'll just swipe my alarm on and off. At its worst, I could go between maybe four times on a good day and maybe like 18 times on a bad day. Just like swiping an alarm on and off. And the irony of all of these rituals is that it affected my sleep because I was so hung up on this idea of sleeping. And yeah, it didn't do me any good. So definitely over the last few months, I've been lucky enough and put myself in a position where I can now sort of understand what's going on here, or at least talk about it and realize that I might have these thoughts, but I'm not a freak. Sure, not everyone does it, but OCD is so common. And like mine isn't even one of the most outlandish ones some people really do go to town and that's okay it developed for a reason for us to stay safe for us to not die which is the primary thing our brains tell us not to do because we wouldn't exist without it so we do it just to like our people with ocd create these rituals in order to seek respite from these anxieties in order to get what they want or just find find some comfort the bulk of your mental health experiences, Alex, revolve around having interruptive or intrusive thoughts, which may be linked to the OCD in some way. But for the listeners, an intrusive thought is an unwelcome, involuntary thought, image or unpleasant idea that may become an obsession, is upsetting or distressing and can feel difficult to manage or eliminate. Now, everyone has some intrusive thoughts in their life at some point, And 
most people can quickly remove them from their mind as quickly as they popped in. But for you, Alex, they've impacted your life in quite a severe way at times. How have intrusive thoughts impacted you? And what examples can you give the listeners about ones you've had? Well, people who do suffer from OCD might also suffer from intrusive thoughts or like more prominent intrusive thoughts. It's a very common thing. And so to break it down, an intrusive thought is just a possibility. It's just our brains being analytical and going through a situation. So like really common ones are like if you take the tube or if you see a train whizzing past, you can just jump in front of it. You can just jump and like get hit by that train your life would end and everybody else on the platform would be scarred for life, essentially. Or like if there's a pregnant lady, you might think about how terrible it would be to just punch her in the stomach. Like just how terrible, but you could, you could just do that. That thought alone is just a piece of information, right? It's not got intention behind it, but because it exists, if you identify with your thoughts and you obsess over them, you sort of take it on as part of your identity. And for me personally, it was a case of, particularly if I talked to somebody who didn't understand it, it was like, what you think about like jumping in front of the train? Really? Oh my God, you should get help about that. And yeah, so for me, I'm like, okay, well, it's this time of the day, the train goes past. I think about jumping in front of it or pushing somebody in front of me. That's what I did yesterday. And it just becomes fuel to the fire, as I call it. This idea of you being somebody, this preconceived idea that's entirely an opinion. It's your own opinion. And so, yeah, I thought to myself, this is what I do. And if there's some possibility of something violent, like say there's a knife or something and someone I love is nearby, well, I will put two and two together. And it became a habit ultimately because it's something that i identified with because i saw myself as a freak this is you being a freak with your freak thoughts this is the kind of person that you are you can probably hear like this sort of like bullying mentality it crushes relationships you know i can't enjoy being in the presence with some people because i'm like you're here freak person with your freak friends you're here with your freak family, that kind of thing. And because people can sympathize with me about some of these really grotesque thoughts, if I'm not careful, that can just become, as I say, fuel to the fire. So yeah, it's really been a process of recovering from that and realizing that these are just thoughts. The reason why I don't like them and the reason why they upset me is because I don't actually identify with them because I don't want to do these things because I want to have more control over it. But ultimately, we don't have that much control over our thoughts. Our minds are analytical. These are possibilities. If you don't recognize that, at least, or you feel as though these thoughts are generated through intention, then it becomes a downward spiral. One thing you said to me off air, Alex, which gave me all sorts of nostalgia for the wrong reasons for my own journey was how these interruptive thoughts or your OCD began to affect you in that, for example, if you found out a girl fancied you, your mind would tell you they're lying or they're doing it for a joke and you're actually ugly. Was that a product of interruptive thoughts or perhaps poor self-esteem or both, do you think? So for me, it's kind of like, it's almost like the other side of the same coin. So I have the flip side. 
as in like it's not a joke i'm not ugly perhaps they are that's why they like me instead which is exactly the same thing perhaps they're daft or like they they're just stupid or something it's um pretty sad to be honest and i apologize to any of my exes who've had to suffer with me identifying them subconsciously at least or like even consciously just knowing this hate is just bubbling on my mind and yeah and actually not really understanding what it was what it is and knowing how i can deal with that and ultimately knowing how to take responsibility over these thoughts because it can't win it just can't get you anywhere so if we use your example of you feeling like it is a joke well honestly is it going to be a joke and if you do think it's a joke what kind of good can actually ever come out of it it's backwards it's not forwards it's not going to help love it's not going to help your appreciation of somebody but even then once going through those feelings it's the next step of don't hate yourself about it because that'll just cause more anxiety and add more fuel to the fire so for me personally i find if i have these thoughts they're thoughts they're just thoughts i don't have to act on them i don't have to make them somebody else's problem i don't have to feel bad about myself they are just what they are and we're all going to have them in some way shape or form and some people are going to be more vulnerable to them than others that is just the way we are as human beings and yeah just as individuals so definitely for anybody listening who is having these thoughts do consider just how useful they are and like how much they'll help you achieve what you value or not even achieve what you value but persevere with what you value and do these thoughts actually help you make the world a better place do they help you make better decisions and if they don't well they're just thoughts you don't have to worry about it because we're all in control of our actions but that's a leap of faith and for me personally it's taking time covid-19 has had a profound effect alex on everyone's mental health but for you it was a time or has been a time when your interruptive thoughts have begun to get a lot lot worse if you could just tell me how that manifests itself and this period of your life so essentially it is what we went through before definitely it was the same kind of things this nightmare about eaten by bugs was kind of weird had that a couple of times cuz like just the energy and like intent to kill me these bugs had is just like so disturbing like it's all they exist to do perhaps uh, it's a manifestation of something in my subconscious it most likely is or maybe again it is just habit I am used to having these nightmares therefore it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But yeah, they just got more frequent to be honest with you. In terms of intensity, the intensity is kind of maxed out to be honest. I know not to do silly things now like I was getting into watching horror movies which I like. Like I do like watching horror movies but like what the hell do I expect? <laughs> no, if I'm seeing disturbing images in front of my face, I don't need any more disturbing images. Like I don't need any more of that. That's just stupid. Obviously, I don't do drugs or anything like that. I coped with it well in the end by just being sensible. And actually, I started taking therapy and talking to people about these things. 
and externalizing it, normalizing it. And it's hard because if you don't get it, if you don't understand that some people might have thoughts about being homicidal without any intent whatsoever, nothing, no intention, and that's kind of the messed up part. That's why it, it's so horrible. If you don't get it, you know, you have kind of all right to think that that person is a freak. It requires sympathy on the other person's behalf. Like, they need to be sympathetic towards these things. So, again, for anybody listening who does have these problems or might even know somebody who does have these problems... It doesn't mean they're a freak. It doesn't mean that they're a psychopath. It's just something that happens. It's just analytical. And that's all it is. And the more stress and the more stigma and the more anxiety that's placed on these issues, the worse it gets. And the more the person will unfortunately identify with them, which is a very destructive process. Before we move on to recovery and therapy, Alex, like you said, it's very difficult for people who aren't versed in this topic to believe that good and decent people have these interruptive thoughts and have these negative and dark thoughts. What do you think has been the most difficult moment or period during your journey of OCD and interruptive thoughts? And then conversely, what do you think got you through it? So coming out about the wishing to my therapist, I was funny. At the end, she gave me like, a long like 20 minutes of like is there anything else you'd like to talk about and i was like uh so uh, i i that's kind of do it's uh, a bit <laughs> and i was just there like i gotta let it go i gotta let it go man like i've just seen how bad these thoughts can get i've just seen how like they can impact and ruin other people not ruin other people's lives but certainly put a dent in it put a dent in other people's lives and their esteems definitely I've seen how it can pull me away from what I love and what I enjoy doing. But that was definitely the crux. And I, I remember just absolutely every single second of it. But something that's so naff, something that's just so damn naff. But to realize when she said she was like, this and the interruptive thoughts, these thoughts are very common and related to OCD. Because I knew I had OCD because it was blatantly obvious, right? Checking your alarm all the time. It's, it's textbook. But having those two linked and me being able to realize other negative thought processes that might be linked or stem from, well, stem from not necessarily OCD, because I don't want to like absolve myself of responsibility like that, but might be influenced by it. And so now I can identify, oh, I thought this, that and the other. I felt a certain way because of mental health issues perhaps or not because of mental health issues but i allowed them to skew my opinion i allowed them to skew my values but definitely talking about the wishing for the first time was like the hard bit definitely i think from this podcast onwards it's not going to be too hard now so thanks for giving me this platform as well um <laughs> you're a good therapist man but yeah i can't think of a singular moment to be honest other than that because it's very constant. I remember waking up when, again, I was in my previous relationship, woke up, and just like looked and I was like, I had like four seconds of beautiful peace and quiet. Where like my body was relaxed. In my head I was like, here comes the bullshit. And then it just came and just hit me. I was like, no, <laughs> no, 
<laughs> the obsessions. My life sucks again. I wish it were, like, actually wish it were something that just hit me and I felt sad as hell for a weekend and then was all right for a month. But it's just not the reality. Like you said, you've done a fair bit of therapy in your life, Alex. And one form of therapy, which I heard about because of what we chatted about off air, is called acceptance and commitment therapy. What is that for the listeners who don't know? And how did it help you? Yes, yeah, so I have been exploring ACT therapy for probably about 15 weeks now, maybe. I read a very good book called The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris, which I'd recommend. And that's really good. And it's very gentle. It's very gentle, but it's very practical. And basically, as the name might suggest, it's about not really trying to control your thoughts. It's a mindfulness-based therapy, so observation is very much at the, the heart of the therapeutic process. But the first thing is that if you feel a certain way, you need to accept it. You can't fight it. As opposed to like positive thinking, for example, where it encourages you to think in a certain way or set up habits that are going to make you feel good. This kind of therapy is, in the most literal sense, kind of lame because it just says that if you're sad, you're meant to kind of feel this way. So just take a few deep breaths, understand it may pass, it may not pass, and just allow plenty of room for how you feel. Don't stress about it. Don't get worried about your anxiety. And from there, in order to rebalance, it has this, well, the commitment part of it, where you consider what are your values, what really speaks to you, what the bottom of your heart, what direction do you want to take your life in? What do you actually want to do? And so you write down values, you set yourself short-term goals. So for example, if you value your health, you'll say, I don't know, I'll go swimming twice a week or something like that. And then gradually build up routines from there. But at the core of it, it's just about observing your emotions, not in a way where you want any control over them whatsoever, because your thoughts, they will come and go. We'll have pleasant ones, we'll have unpleasant ones, because we're all human beings at the end of the day. And that's kind of the core of it anyway. But yeah, if anyone is interested in checking out ACT therapy, the happiness trap is really fantastic mindfulness is a big tool for you and your mental health Alex so much so that you wrote your university dissertation on it can you tell me how you utilize mindfulness maybe break down a couple of the myths or perhaps assumptions people might have about it as a lot of people can think of mindfulness as you know a buddhist monk sitting on a towel cross-legged humming which it isn't and how did it help you and what did you explore in that dissertation I think again when I was in second year and was talking about reconnecting with music again I went in with quite a controlling attitude, come to think of it. As in, I've got so much BS going through my mind about the way that my parents treat each other, the way that my family is, the way that I've made these life choices, X, Y, just anything. I'm talking anything here. So I decided could... Well, actually, I read the book Effortless Mastery by uh, jazz pianist Kenny Werner. We're talking about a monk sitting like on a big hill and like... I know the Himalayas or something like <laughs> this kind of does have aspects of that and it is a bit of a trippy read but it's worth reading because Kenny Werner's writing style is kind of fun and the whole thing at the very least if you do accept it in some for what it is it can make you feel quite good and definitely did have some benefits so that put me on to meditating and looking back the actual meditations in this book aren't too different from things that are 
they're encouraged in mindfulness-based techniques. So, for example, John Kabat-Zinn's work or Mark Williams's work. And they're basically around very gently breathing in and out, focusing on just the physical, the physical aspect of what's going on. Not judging it. You're just breathing in. There's nice and cold and it is. And you gently breathe it out. Rinse and repeat. And that's all there is to it. And I was really attracted to this simplicity of thoughts. The fact that I think this was really the start of me seeing a lot of my thoughts as unnecessary. There wasn't a need for me to think about how cool I am when I'm playing the saxophone because it's not going to help, you know. I don't want to be obsessing about how attractive I look when I'm playing music on stage. I don't want to be obsessing about with my friends like this. I just want to do it. I don't want to rob myself of the moment. So I was lucky in that my music school actually has an eight-week mindfulness course that's based off Mark Williams's strategy, which you can find in Mindfulness, A Practical Guide for Finding Peace in a Frantic World, which is a good book, which I featured a lot in my dissertation. And yeah, it was more a case of definitely in the following year being able to put myself in a space where when I practice, it's just me and the saxophone, it's the noises, it's actually being in the present moment on a very sensory level. And I just love it. And I went off it for a bit because I was often using it as a control strategy, what is often described as experiential avoidance, as in, as opposed to using mindfulness to observe my thoughts and emotions, I was actually trying to use it as a way of like cramming it into a box so I wouldn't have to worry about it. So I stopped meditating for about half a year. But these days when I do it, it just is. It just is. I wouldn't say I'm any good at it. I just do it. And the benefits are kind of just like a byproduct, I guess. So that's been my journey with mindfulness. I really like the app Headspace. That's really great because it actually teaches you <laughs> kind of teaches you morals and it reminds me like if you do it in the morning which I do kind of reminds you of like when I'm at school and you sit down for an assembly and a teacher tells you what's what and <laughs> how you're meant to live and having good values but it's very gentle it's very charismatic it's it's very much take it or leave it so I'm just really enjoying I'm enjoying mindfulness at the minute and my dissertation was on how I could take these methods taking these methods of feeling centered, focus, the words are a little bit hazy at the minute, and how I can use them to affect the way that I improvise or affect the other people, you know, can use them to affect their musicality. And I had a great time interviewing a couple of my teachers about how mindfulness or mindfulness-based meditations have helped them improvise, make up things on the spot, how it affects them in situations where there's a lot of pressure. And to be honest, there weren't any revelations. Like, I cannot say if you meditate for 15 minutes a day, you're going to be able to play D major really quickly. <laughs> you're going to be able to play your scales like nobody's business. It's not like a workout routine. And you know what? You don't get any better at it. As a final question, Alex, if you could go back and talk to that Alex who was struggling with his OCD, with his interruptive thoughts, or even earlier and was being bullied... What would you say to him, knowing what you do now? So, first of all, your thoughts are just thoughts. Thoughts and judgments about who's cool or not, the thoughts about who you are as a person. It's just an opinion. You can change it. You can just change it. It's not a case of, I think, therefore I am. It just isn't. You can't really choose your thoughts. We all exist, again, as I said earlier, through our own lens. But I'd say 
if you're feeling uncomfortable, just remind yourself of, are these thoughts useful? You don't have to know exactly what you're about. You don't have to know who's cool or not. Don't care about those kind of things. Like really do what works for you. And also just hang around people who will look after you and you can look after them. You can actually be kind towards each other because that's what it all comes down to at the end of the day is just love and kindness towards each other. That's how we progress. That's how we find energy to move forward and to help each other and do podcasts like this, for example, because I imagine this is why you did it, right? You're like, I've been through this journey. I am now in a position where I can help people. I've been through a journey that perhaps not everyone's been through or perhaps other people have been through. Therefore, I am empowered and I have this ability to, to do that. And you've done it. And there's plenty of thoughts we could have that would tell us otherwise, but they just don't matter. And I think that's what I tell myself, that the thoughts don't matter as much as your intentions. Our final topic of conversation, Alex, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, and you can definitely include or exclude if you want the circumstances we are living in at time of recording, but how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? My mental health is fairly good. And I say that because of my awareness of it. Because if we're in a situation where we weren't so aware of what's going on or like processes or like being aware of like habits, I might have a thinking. I wouldn't consider myself as in, you know, such a capable position as I am now. And I feel as though definitely more so now than ever, a lot of people do need a lot of love, a lot of kindness. And I want to do that for me, at least. That's a pointer in the right direction. How about you? I'm existing, mate. I'm existing. We've said this off air as well. Yeah, I'm definitely existing. I, I was surviving. Now I'm just existing. I feel like existing is a good word to use for, for everything. What things do you find in life, mate, that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people might say to you. could be a sound, could be a sensation, a social environment. What can you tell me here? Or have you not figured all of them out yet? Oh, man. Dinner tables. Scare me stiff. Um, <laughs> you're on the wrong day. I've got to sit there and come up with something to say. Got to come up with something. You've got to come up. You don't want to be awkward. Got to go. Got to say it. And then my brain's having this conversation. And next thing you know, it's like someone asked me a question. I'm not even listening to them. <laughs> so <laughs> that's definitely a sort of trigger. I say a trigger because it's it's unusual. Like, already as usual, it's not, it's not that intense. At the minute, I would say I'm quite... Because I'm not hanging out with friends a lot, I am, but it's like, it's through the internet, right? I am much more prone to like very slow mood swings, as in I might feel a certain way for a couple of days and I might feel a certain way for another couple of days as opposed to it being like, oh, I don't feel so good now. I've just eaten some lunch and now I feel great. And then someone's just said this to me and that's wonderful. And then this news has come through. So like the rate of my mood is definitely like on the slower side. And I will say that I'm really taking care of myself. I'm not really drinking any alcohol at the minute. And not at all, actually, for the last few weeks. Even caffeine, like, to be honest. If I've had a couple of cups of coffee and, like, I have a caffeine crash, I'm just, like, this moody. It's so, yeah, just, <laughs> like, just lame. Like, lame and unhelpful. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? What did you say? 
And what impact did it have on you? And how did you feel afterwards? Did it feel like a big moment and a big burden or weight had been lifted? Or did it feel like something insignificant and quite normalized? I think it was definitely my previous relationship where I started to at least realize what was going on. But she was the first person I ever spoke to about my interruptive thoughts, which is incredibly brave to have actually taken in. I wouldn't say she understood them. She was scared. You know, she was scared by these thoughts, but she took it in her stride anyway. And since then, to be honest, if I've been able to talk about that, I can now talk to other people about other things and sort of like, that's when the floodgates were kind of opening. You know, I've always known about mental health issues. I've always, well, I say that, yeah, for five years or so of like, I've really understood that these are a thing that we might all come across. But it's definitely been a 2020 thing where I've been like, now it's time to take responsibility over them. What tools and methods do you use in your own life, Alex, to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked and which ones that you've tried maybe, but haven't? I know you were really keen to talk on this question about hobbies and the importance of hobbies in people's lives. Yeah, so the boring stuff, like like that is, the boring stuff is where it's at. One of my pastimes is learning Japanese and I have like acrylic paint and I'll actually just, um, so for those who may or may not know, in Japan they have three alphabets and depending on which alphabet you write in, they have sort of like different implications. And so uh, I learned the hiragana alphabet by just painting the symbols over and over again. But it's really, really soothing and it helps integrate into my mindset and I think that works for anybody. So that's been a really useful one. I exercise every day. I just do. I meditate every day. I make sure that, you know, like a couple of TV shows I'm like into and like just seeing if I'm really like really get into them and really pay attention. That's like really fun as well. But yeah, the boring stuff. But for me, learning Japanese has been like the most recent one because all of our free time at the minute is spent staring at screens and a lot of our work time is so my eyes were just so dry (laughs) i was like we've got to do something about this and also because we're all cooped up inside i think it's good to have the possibility of going somewhere exotic that you've never been to before i'm probably not going to get there for another couple of years but at least it's something something i want to do and i can work towards yeah so sports as well i don't really do that but that's that's a fantastic thing to do And how do you support friends in your own social group who may have mental health issues themselves or might be going through a poor period of mental health, whether that be men or women? Patience. So, so much patience. All of us live in our own realities. You can try and help somebody in a way that would work for yourself. You can take somebody out who might be depressed, for example, and show them a great time and then they're sad about it. And the temptation is to give up because you're like, oh man, I've been sad before and like this would cheer me up all day. But that's not really how it works. People live in their own reality. So you need to have or one needs to have the patience to understand everyone as individuals and, you know, really speak on their level if possible. So for me as well, trust is so, so important and like really taking people out and just spending time with them, not being judgmental, not with the objective of cheering them up, not with the objective of setting them straight, but just so they feel as though perhaps they're not alone because we're not alone. 
Toxic masculinity is a big topic on this podcast, Alex, and it's one we try and break down a lot. Now, hopefully in a few more pods and hopefully maybe a few more years, and if we can be optimistic that toxic masculinity will become a very, very small minority and masculinity will become something very positive and not derided in the mainstream public sphere. What examples of toxic masculinity have you experienced in your life that you can share with the listeners? And what does it mean to you? Uh, So definitely in terms of the bullying could be is a symptom of toxic masculinity i will say as well at schools like this idea of being the biggest and strongest in sport achievement overtakes sportsmanship a lot of the time and a lot of schools they want to get funding so they're going to have to put their biggest boys into the best teams but i drift off topic i don't think sports really perpetuates toxic masculinity i think people's perhaps inability to appreciate sports might But yeah, it's bad and it is so common and it's common here in the UK. But like there are countries where like if you're not a certain way, you're not a man, you're not valid. And if you're not a man, you're not a human being. What the hell are you? And people genuinely do carry this energy around with them and it's just not helpful. It's not going to help anybody. It's not going to help people help themselves. It's just an obligation. And we're all going to screw up at some point. So if we're harsh on ourselves and we feel obligated because that's the right thing to do, because that's what a real man does, well, A, it absolves us of any feeling of pride because we don't feel as though it's us making the choice. It's us just going along with society. But also if we don't fulfill those measures, then what are we worth? What are we as human beings if we are to follow this sort of preconceived idea of what being a man is? It's just not true. I also talk a lot about positive masculinity on this pod, Alex, and hopefully as well in a few more years that masculinity will be just described in positive terms. How would you define positive masculinity and what qualities should a man have to exude to be described as positively masculine? For example, some guests have talked about self-confidence, empathy, supporting others with their mental health, being emotionally tough. So the idea of being able to experience things positive or negative, ride those challenges and get on with life, be able to support other men in their life. What can you tell me here? So I've had to think about this, actually. And for me, bravery is really at the heart of this. And it's such a misconstrued term because when people think of bravery, they think of like some dude on horseback like like about to invade scotland or something and this idea that like almost bravery is such a violent militant concept but it's not bravery often is listening to somebody really pour their heart out and being like yeah i've really felt this way as well and then having the patience again with the patience to like fight off the frustration fight off the even the damage, it might actually hurt and drain you emotionally to help somebody out. But bravery and love will get you through that. So for me, like, I do value love. I do value helping people and kindness more than absolutely anything in the world. So, for example, my mum at the minute, you know, she seems to be very depressed. And it's frustrating. I can't really see her You know, she might listen to this, but I can't really confide in her as a truly emotional supportive role, perhaps. Or I can, but there have been a lot of times when I haven't. But that's fine. That's absolutely fine because I believe in her. 
I feel like I have the bravery to talk to her, to take her out for walks, to do whatever it takes for her to be able to confide in me, to be able to confront whatever's upsetting her. And that to me is what being a man's about. It's what being a human being's about. Male, female, any part of the gender spectrum, it is 100% being able to give unconditional kindness towards somebody is step one. It is step one. Once you're able to stay grounded and look after yourself and have two feet on the floor, for me at least, that's my primary objective. And new car smell is a part of that. And just finally, mate, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? (laughs) Work. Graft. Writing's on the wall, Freddie. You're doing it right now. We're doing it right now. These conversations about being a wimp, about being a wet wipe, about this, realizing, normalizing it, because these terms are not true. They are not. And the positive benefit of it is, is that we can take ownership of our mental health issues because we all have anxieties and we all have things holding ourselves back, but they can never be an excuse. They can never be an excuse and we should be able to facilitate that. So practical things, if your friends just moping around, you notice like a bit downtrodden, maybe they're not sleeping properly or maybe they're upset because they don't have the job they want or something like that. It's a cliche, but like just sitting down with a cup of tea, it's been like, hey, you don't seem okay. Is there anything you want to talk about? I'm all ears. And just like opening up a dialogue to absolutely everyone. Other ways is creating communities. This is where art is fantastic because you can create drama and theater and like include people who aren't feeling particularly good about themselves and like really promote, not, you know, in hopefully a tasty, a tasteful, not tasty, ah, maybe tasty, who knows, in a tasteful, charismatic way being like, hey, welcome to what we do. Would you like to join in? And giving people that door that is wide open, irrespective of who they are. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Behind the Mic. Thank you to Alex from Newcastle Smell for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me go behind the mic with him. My favourite Newcastle Smell track aptly named Tip Bag McGee will play us out. I told you they were weird and wacky. And I'll put all of Newcastle Mel's streaming and social media links in the show notes. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, maybe your work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're feeling very, very generous, please support our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. Every penny really does count. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Mic. And remember, it's always okay to vent.